of a dying man, a special rabbinic provision to allow people to dispose of their property just before they died, which for a certain period of time was the culture. A person would gather around the people who were visiting him and he would dispose of his property. Shechiv made a dying man, Shomar, who said, to new man of the plane, he gave the $100 to so-and-so, that's a, that was when $100 was worth something. One day, and then he died. Yit no lachamisa, they should give it after death. Shechiv made Shechiv, because we learned earlier the principle is that the words of a dying man, kiksubim vichim surim domu, are as if they're written and conveyed, and therefore the man said, give him $100, you give him $100. We are not suspicious that what he was referring to is that this man once gave him $100 to guard and he buried it somewhere. So if he finds it, fine. If you don't find it, you don't. That's, we don't go there. But we just have the man receive $100. The chain so also should be made a dying man. Shomaru said, I'll go alone. If he caught an or the object that was given to guard, she has to be out plainly, which I have in the hands of so and so, which means the dying man gave Shimon, a fellow named Shimon, alone, or he gave him something to guard. And now he says, to so the plainly, this object or this loan, see to it that it gets to Levi. The word of Kayonim, his words should be sustained. Now, ordinarily, we learned in the case of a non dying man under normal circumstances, in order for Ruving, who is owed money by Shimon to instruct Shimon to give it to Levi. Instead, you need to have what's called Ma'amad Shloshkan. All three need to be standing there at the same time. Here, because the man is dying, <coughs> you do not need Ma'amad Shloshkan. They ain't sorry for Ma'amad Shloshkan. We don't need all three of them standing at the same location at the same time. And so also, Imam Harapi said, Tanu, Shtar, Plain, you Plain, you have this document. I guess today you would call it a deed of trust or a bill of sale or a promissory note. Zohar Bamashi Yashkishtar, and his intent was that the recipient should acquire the value outlined in the note, because it's a special deal. <coughs> With a dying man, it's as if it was written and conveyed. Even though the guy did not do an act of acquisition on the note because acts of acquisition are not required with wills of dying men. Now there's a problem when it comes to a promissory note. If the promissory note says Mr. X owes me I have a million dollars and I even give the note to someone else, I can still go and forgive Mr. X and say, you know what, you don't have to pay me to have a million dollars. So can the heirs go ahead and do that? The heirs cannot forgive it. Given in the gift of a dying man, even though we learned earlier, if somebody sells or gives a note of obligation to someone else, and then the heir forgives it, is considered forgiven. But here, because it's the will of a dying man, no, it can't happen. Why is it? Why is it different? Because this whole acquisition of that which is documented in the note is a rabbinic decree. Because therefore, the heir still has possession of this note. When we by biblical law, therefore he can forgive it. However, the gifts of a dying man, even though the origin of the gifts of a dying man are rabbinic, but still, as we talked earlier, also the sages insisted that it be respected with the strength of a Torah law. We repeated this again and again. Therefore, by this rabbinic decree which made it with the strength of Torah law, it's as if the recipient acquired that which is represented in this note. Biblically, Miguel Yodi was delivered to him because Therefore, the heir has nothing. Therefore, he can't forgive him. A dying man who said, I have a hundred dollars belonging to someone else. In Omar, if he says give it to him, you give it. If he didn't say give it to him, you don't give it. Because there's a possibility that the only reason he says that you know I have a hundred dollars belongs to somebody else, because he didn't want people speaking about his heirs that they're rich. It wasn't a hundred dollars, it was a million dollars. That's why he said, you know, the million dollars, it's not really mine. But he was just bluffing. Therefore, if he said it in a manner of admission, there was no suspicion that he would be fooling anybody or trying to do a ploy. There's no possibility. For example, the person to whom he stated he owed money was present, or the dying man had no children. Even though he didn't say, what if children saw their father? She ate boys, buried money, concealed money, the table in a drawer or a chest or a tower, in a hiding place. And as he was concealing the money, he says, I want you guys to know this belongs to Moshe. Or he said, This is second tithe money which I have to take to Jerusalem and buy food and eat in Jerusalem as we learned extensively in the laws of the second tithe, not regular money. If what he was doing appeared that he's actually conveying it belongs to Moshe or it is Moshe Shaini, his words are sustained. But maybe he's just trying to be deceptive so his children shouldn't think he's wealthy or whatever the situation is. He said nothing, so it has to be decided what his thoughts were. So also somebody came along and said, I saw your father. I saw him hide money in a chest or a drawer. 
or a tower or a hiding place. The Yomar and I heard him say, Shuffle the this belongs to so-and-so. Shall my sitting, I heard him say, these are second tithe money, others say first tithe. If I told him about if it was hidden in the house, the Yomar Kulmi says nothing because this guy who's making this statement has no access to the house. But Basod, if it's out in the field somewhere where the guy has access, Dwarf Kayonim is worth to sustain. Chloe shall go over. The bottom line is, Kayosheni Yachalita, if the guy who's making the statement has access to take it, Dwarf Kayonim is worth to sustain. He can go take it. Therefore, we should believe him. Meanwhile, if he's talking about something hidden in the house to which the heirs and the heirs only have access. Layamakulim, it's meaningless. Here's a beautiful scenario, my friends. One of the most beautiful in Torah. What if somebody was very upset because he knows his father left him a lot of money? And he has no idea where his father put them. The money is buried somewhere. He just doesn't know on which tree. And he's going crazy because the father died. And he can use the money. Suddenly a miracle happens. The Amrulay Bachalani had a dream. And in the dream, he was told, Kach Bakachem, it was so much and so much money. They came plainly hanging in this and this place. Under the third tree, fourth row. Vishal plainly hain, but I want you to know the money belongs to Moshe. Vishal Masashani Hain. Or in the dream he says, I want you to know the money is tithe money, second tithe money. The guy woke up, he put on his boots, and he dug. Omitsum and he found him the more complaining in the exact place. Shanamalai, which was told him in the dream, Ubaminion in the exact number. Shanamalai, which was told to him. Wow. Now what does he have to do with the money? Does he have to follow the dream? A story like this happened. And they came to the sages. The guy says, what should we do? What should I do? The Amru Chachamim and our sages said, Words of dreams are very nice, but they're not law. It doesn't go up, it doesn't go down, it doesn't contribute, it doesn't... It, 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 do what you want to do. A dream does not obligate you to give money. You want to give money, give money. Which means, despite the fact that we know this was a real dream, but you're not obligated to convey money because of dreams. A dying man made an admission that he has money belonging to someone, $100, and the orphans who are the heirs come along and say, Yes, it's true, he once owed him the money. But we know that our father paid him. Now, morning they believed, but they have to take a rabbinic oath to back up their statement. Omar, what if he said give? The Omar, you say, and the orphan said, later, our father said, I paid him, ain't the money. Here, they're not believed, because he said give. Omar, if he said, the dying man said, one of the plenty of the other, I have a hundred dollars belonging to so-and-so. The Omar, you say, and the orphan said, no, son, we gave it. Ain't the money, they're not believed. Shall I leave Omar, because he didn't say to no. I mean, I How do they know they have to give it? So we suspect they're not telling the truth. Omar, what if he did say give? The Omar, you say, and the orphan say, no, son, we gave. That morning they believed, and they have to take a rabbinic oath that they did give. A dying man gave a hundred dollars to somebody. He said to him, Take this hundred to so-and-so. So the guy takes it. By the time he comes to so-and-so, he finds that so-and-so died. He's delivering the money to so-and-so. The guy died. So we have to ascertain. If the man who died was alive at the moment of conveyance, at the moment the guy gave it to him, he must know that it should be given to the guy's heirs. Because the conveyance was made when the guy was alive. Should give it because the words of a shibina, of a dying man are like a done deal. But if he wasn't alive at that moment, he should go back to the heirs of the man who died to give her the donor. Because you can't acquire for a dead man. And the man died. You give a shibina shama, a dying man said to him, Here's an interesting scenario for the mathematicians amongst us. The dying man says, Listen, give $200 to Mr. A. And give $300 to Mr. B. Two and three is five. The Arba may Zeus Laplanian and give four hundred dollars to Mr. C. Five and four is nine. So you need nine hundred Zeus in order to make this, this to, to, to give out this money, to disperse this money, this first one. So what do you do when you only find six hundred dollars? You have two ways to approach it. Either you'll say the first one gets first, and the second one gets second, and the last one too bad. Or you'll say you prorate it. Now, those are the two approaches. We don't say first first. The people of the Ephraim Laplanian if the man did not leave nine hundred, which is required for this disbursement, it is all divided by ratio. According to what he wrote down. Also, if somebody comes to foreclose with a document of foreclosure, he collects from all of them. For example, if the document called for a collection of 450, the guy who got 200 gives 100. The guy who got 300 gives 150. And the man who got 400 gives 200. So in this scenario, these numbers, everybody gives back half, and everybody's happy. Again, it's prorated. But if he said, and he verbalized it differently, his words were, he was playing, he gave 200 Zeus to so-and-so. And after you do that, those are the magic words. And after you do that, Shlesh Meis Leplani, you give 300 to so and so. The Achrav, and after you do that, after the disbursement, give Arba Meis Leplani, you give 400 to so and so. Then the first one mentioned gets first. Because he said it afterwards. 
If somebody comes with a mortgage and he says, hey, I have a lien on this property, he collects from the last one first. If there isn't enough, he goes to the second one. If that isn't enough, he goes to the first one, the closing. Paragraph of chapter 10. We learned similar laws earlier in the laws of sales. A dying man said, my good buddy, he should live in my house. My pleasure. My good buddy, let him eat the fruits of my date palm. He can have as much dates as he wants. What does that mean? The answer is nada. It means nothing. He said nothing. Because let him live in my house has no substance. It's, a, it's theoretical. It's, it's something that doesn't exist. Let him collect the dates that will come. What if they won't come? It's all theoretical. And we learned that you can't be makne. You can't convey something that isn't. Or something that's air. A right to live in my house. How, how do you substantiate that? Shahadira, because living. Or eating. It's like speaking. He can speak. Or sleeping. You can't convey these things. Ah, but as we learned at great length earlier. There is a way to do this. He said to Give my house to so-and-so. For the purpose of so he has a right to live there. He's not giving the house, but he's giving the house for the purpose of living. The house is substance. To new decals that give this palm, big palm, we're playing to so and so. So in order that he eats the produce, here his words are sustained. Why? Because he conveyed the body of the tree, if only for the purpose of the fruit. The body of the house, if only for the purpose of the dwelling. The body of a tree or a house is substantial. Anything similar? End of chapter ten. Ramba, Mishnah Torah, Yuchay, the laws of acquisition, umatona, and gifts. Chapter 11. I want to give a little bit of an introduction to chapter 11. By Torah law, the sons of a man inherit, inherit his estate. Why is that? Because the Jewish people inherited Israel by tribe. Tribal affiliation follows the father. So the son would inherit the father by the tribe. Well, what about the daughter? The daughter would marry whoever she marries and become part of her husband's tribe. So if the daughter would inherit, it would make a balagan. This is the logic that is given Behind the Torah law, times changed. The Jewish people were exiled. They were in Babylon. They didn't have land, according to tribes. So people began to have their daughters inherit as well. Why not? In fact, we learned earlier in the laws of marriage that by rabbinic law, every daughter a man had had to receive 10% of his estate. This is called Isur Ayin, Yud. Sin, Resh, Isur, or Sin, Bab, Resh. A tenth, Isur, Bonnes, of the daughter. Every daughter would receive 10% of the estate. This was her money. She would use it as Nidunya for marriage and what have you. We learned all the details, the... the the first daughter takes 10%, and then the second daughter takes 10% of whatever's left, and the third daughter takes 10% of whatever's left, and so on and so forth. So, now, having said that, the question is, Shechiv made a dying man. Sha'amaru made a statement. And remember, dying people couldn't make long statements because they're dying, they're gasping for breath. And he said, These possessions should be conveyed to my children. Now, the word banai could mean children. The word banai could mean sons. Did he mean children, male and female children, or did he mean only sons? That's the question. So the daughters are not included. Because when we talk about inheritance, we go back to Torah law, which talks about sons. But if he had one son and one daughter, or he had a son and a grandson, son of a son, even though he said to my children, which is plural, he would give it to his son. Because one son could be called sons as well. Now comes an interesting scenario. A dying man, Shomaru said, Give all my possessions, or my possessions, to a fellow named Tovia. The word Tov means good, Ka means God, the goodness of God, or Tovia. The name. Give it to John. And then he dies. Everybody's wondering, who is this Tovia? And one guy comes along and he says, Hi, I want to introduce myself. My name is Tuvia. And I just inherited a billion dollars. He said, That's me. Nathan, he takes them. Nobody knows who Tuvia is, but he takes it. Because he's the only Tuvia around, or Tuvia. The only game in town. However, but if he's known as Rabbi Tuvia, the great scholar, and the dying man said it without the title Rabbi, which would be disrespectful if he was a guy. And Nathan, he doesn't take it because it's probably not him. Probably left it to a good buddy of his called Tuvia, not to this Rabbi. Otherwise, he would have said, I'm leaving everything to Rabbi Tuvia. However, if the dying man was a good friend of this rabbi, sometimes people have very close relationships with the rabbi, they'll call him by his first name. And he called him by his first name without the title. He gets to take it, he gets to take this inheritance. 
That is, if there's one guy named Tuvia or Tuvia. But Moshe and Lidbeya, what if both of them come along? Two guys named Tuvia. One guy says, it's me. The other guy says, no, it's me. And then they have ID. They have witnesses who say that's their name. You know, sometimes a person hears there's a, an estate available, and they ask him what his name is. He says, whatever you want it to me. <laughs> Just tell me what it should be. But here, these guys are really Tuvia or Tuvia. So who gets priority? How do we know which one? If one of them was a scholar, we imagine this fellow wanted to leave his estate to a scholar. Talmud Chacham gave him the Torah scholar takes precedence. There is no Torah scholar. And one was a neighbor. Commentary say neighbor doesn't mean neighbor, but it means very good friend neighbor. A Karib or relative, Shlomo Amela says, a close neighbor is preferable to a distant relative, meaning a good friend is better than a faraway relative. People have brothers they don't talk to. People have friends they're bosom buddies with. So the word Shochem means a very close friend, a Karib or a blood relative who paid him, then the friend or relative come before the scholar. I'm sorry. Let me cite that again. If there was no Talmud Chacham, there was no scholar, but one of them was a good friend or relative, the good friend or relative takes priority. What if one was a neighbor friend? The Echad Karev one was a relative. Shochem Kedem, the neighbor friend, comes first because a close friend is preferable to a distant relative. Or a close neighbor. Shnei Hem what if they're both related? Shnei Hem Shnei they're both friend neighbors. Shnei Hem Talmud Chacham, they're both scholars. Yasu Adayon, Kameshi Yorlehem. Here, we come into the law stated earlier. Shuda Didayone, or Didayone, the estimation of the courts, the courts decide. When the courts think that this is what he probably meant, we give it to this fellow. This is not only when there's two candidates, there could be many candidates. All my possessions should go to so and so, and so and so, and so and so. He mentioned three. They all get it equally. Even if he enumerates 100 people, then you take the estate and divide it by 100. Again, what we're talking about, as we spoke much earlier in great detail, is this was the culture before a person passed away, he would say where he wants his estate to go, to override the default Torah law of the entire state going to, to the sons, except for support of wife and Esau bonus and the 10% that goes to daughters. Omar, if he said, my estate should go to so-and-so, and to my children, can you split it? Plainly, so-and-so. Nato Master takes half, 50%. The Chalbon of Master and all of his children combined get the other half. Omar, so there's a story with one person, who said to his wife, a man said to his wife, I'm leaving my estate to you, my dear, and to your children. Now, what does that mean? How do you divide the estate? Our sages say that being that he listed it in two groupings, she takes half the estate, and her children get the other half, and they have to divide it. Omar, he said, with plenty to so and so, with plenty and so and so, with plenty to so and so's children. The third was a group, the third, which is a group, gets half, because that's what a group suggests, says the commentaries here. The first two, Mechsa have to split the other half. So you have the name enumerated first, gets 25%, second, 25%, and the group gets 50%. Seven, a dying man said, so and so should split in my estate, split, Tano takes half. What if he says, give a part, give a portion? What's a portion? Says the Rambam. In halacha, a portion is, one over one six, one sixteenth. One over four, a quarter. Give so and so, my firstborn, the wine. I'm sorry, I read that wrong. Give so and so, the wine in the wine cistern that I have. There's no firstborn here, I read it wrong. Let him get a quarter of the wine. Omar. Because he said a portion of the wine. Omar give him a portion to pour into jugs, which suggests less wine. Are mute? That's less. Let him get an eighth of the wine. Omar, if he said give him enough wine to cook with, cooking wine, enough to cook with. He takes a twelfth. Omar, give him a portion for just to, to get it wet for a small cup. He gets a sixteenth of the wine in that cistern. Because by saying that expression, he indicates that he wants only a little bit of a portion given to this person. Now, these measures are specific measures for this scenario. And he says in Tessin 9, one should never apply these specific measures to many other situations. There should be no extrapolation of these laws to other situations. Let my wife inherit like one of my sons. Again, the Torah law is the sons inherit. The wife is supported from the estate generously until she remarries. What if he says, I want my wife to inherit along with my sons? They tell us, she takes like one of the sons. Meaning, if he says like one of the sons, so if there are six sons, they split the estate into seven. Or probably into eight, because the oldest son always did double, maybe. 
What if new sons are born after this will was stated? They combine with the ones who existed earlier, and the newly born child or children take a portion with the existing ones. For example, at the time this will was made, there were three sons. And in time, two more were born. Then the two more, and then she takes like one of the five, which is a sixth. So here, the Ramam does not talk about the oldest getting double. I, I, we're going to talk about the laws of inheritance as to whether that works always or only in the inheritance process, not in the gift process. She only gets, by his declaration, items of within his possession that exists at that time. But anything that came to be part of his estate after that moment of will, this goes to an original principle of spouse. A person cannot convey something that does not exist at this moment within his possession. A dying man said, The movable object that so-and-so has. The movable objects that I have, the plainly should go to so-and-so. The person should receive his personal utensils. That's what he was talking about. His personal effects. But it doesn't include the wheat in his house, the barley in his house, all of his pantry items. This fellow should receive everything I own that moves. That's not land. That's not real estate. He takes it all. However, the servants are never included in movable objects. Even not the lower millstone, which we learned earlier. Is more permanent, because it's connected to the ground. Omar, he said, call on the towel, anything that moves. He also gets the lower millstone because it could be uprooted from the ground. Or anything similar. A dying man said, all my possessions look plainly to so and so. He says, all my possessions. He takes anything that moves and all movable, portable objects. And all land, real estate. And all garments. He empties out his closet. And his servants. Any livestock, any birds. He takes his filling. He takes other books. It's all within possessions. That's a pretty broad word. Abel say prepared about a Torah scroll. Yes, by suffering, there is doubt. Whether a Torah scroll should be considered property, since a Torah scroll should never be sold or given away, except for very special causes. So it's questionable if this Torah scroll is included in property. The people therefore enforce it. If the recipient grabs possession of it, aim it in the other, he can't force it away from him. Shimon Asher Omar, a dying man said to Moshe, "I am Zuz Leplani. Bechayi Karoi, I give so and so my firstborn two hundred Zuz as he deserves." What does that mean? That's very ambiguous. Neiklon. He takes the 200 zoos, and he gets his birthright, that which he deserves as a firstborn. So this becomes on top of the birthright. That's the way Halach interprets that statement. Omar, but if he said, as his birthright, so he's given the option. He can have either the birthright or the 200 zoos. If he wants the portion of birthright, which means the double portion of the estate, he takes it. If 200 zoos is more than double of the estate, he takes that. Also, if he said to him, give 200 zoos, which is a lot of money. The plain is to so-and-so, my wife, as she is deserving. What is he talking about? Is he talking about her ksuba? Interestingly enough, the number mentioned in the ksuba is 200 zoos. Or is he talking about an extra additional 200 zoos? That's the question. Neitalter, she takes that, but they tell us ksubasa as well as the ksuba. Because obviously the ksuba was in place without him saying that. In Mamar, big ksubasa, but if he says for the ksuba, yoda al yaina, then she gets the choice. She either takes the 200 zoos or whatever is stipulated in the ksuba, because a lot of things would be stipulated in the ksuba. Omar, Tunuma, Sayyid, Zuz, with plenty of give 200 zoos, a lot of money, to so and so, my creditor, as he deserves. Neitlon, he takes that, but Neitlon, plus he collects. Because he seems to be indicating a gift. Omar Bechayve, if he says for his debt, he only collects the debt. Omar, what if a dying man said, This is interesting. I mean, it's all interesting. I found this interesting. Give 400 zoos to this and this fellow, the Yisabiti, and have him marry my daughter. Give this gentleman, this young man, 400 zoos, and have him marry my daughter. Is this one statement or is this two statements? This is like two gifts. First of all, he gives him a gift of 400 zoos. Second of all, he gives him a gift of approving his marriage to his daughter. Obviously, she has to want to. Nobody gets married against their will in Jewish law. He can take whatever he wants. He can take the foreign zoos and say, Sayonara, I'm not interested in marrying your daughter. Therefore, in Rosa, if he wants to, he can take the money. He doesn't want to marry the daughter. He can. He has that option. Because in that statement, according to this interpretation, one was not conditional upon the other. He doesn't have to marry the daughter in order to get the 400 zoos. Just on the lighter side, because I see that there's a lot of seriousness in this room. They tell a story. It's, it's a Beltzmeister. It's a world story. That a man had a, a daughter who was getting on in, in age. 
and uh, she already reached her a very old age in that culture. She turned 30 years old. So he says, I have a 30-year-old daughter. Anybody who marries her gets 30,000 rubles. He says, and by the way, I have a 40-year-old daughter. Anyone who marries her gets 40,000 rubles. This guy knocks on the door. He says, is it true? He says, absolutely. He says, can I ask you one question? He says, of course. He says, you have maybe a 50-year-old. <laughs> it's a living. <laughs> but that's just on the lighter side. Okay, now that everybody woke up, we'll continue. Therefore, in Rotsa, Lika, Hamas, he wants to get the money. Will Yisabas and not marry the daughter? Yikaf, that's fine. Amali, Mamar, but if he said, if the dying man said, he phrased it in other words. He used other verbiage. Yikaf, Biti, he should marry my daughter. And he should be given 400 zoos. And he said, tonight, this already is a condition. Really, Yisabas, he doesn't get the money. Yikaf, until he marries the daughter. If Yikaf, Yikaf, the dying man said, give 400 zoos to my daughter as her marriage suba money. Meaning, this is an expression. For her marriage, a lik for her dowry. This is called not dowry. If the culture of the place is that for poetic reasons, for sounding good reasons, they exaggerate the dowry. When the guy gives $100, they call it $200. You ever, you ever wonder when you walk into a jewelry store and you pay $1,000 for a piece of jewelry, you then walk out with an appraisal for $2,000? How do you do that? I've never figured that out. If I just paid $1,000, how are you appraising it for $2,000? Well, it depends how you look at it. I gave it to you wholesale. This is retail. This is from China. The same thing with dowry. People would give 100, but they would say, I'm giving you 200 because it's like 200. It was, a cult, it was culturally accepted. What he said was 400. 400 equals 200. You cut it in half. Because he didn't just say 400 zoos. He said of dowry, 400 zoos. Of dowry is 200 in cash. Give what is interpreted in the Ksuba as meaning the Ksuba is a marriage agreement. This young lady brought into the marriage 200 zoos, which is written as 400 zoos. Chabbez, the 22nd paragraph. Give a dowry. To my daughter, again, this man is dying, and he says, give my daughter so-and-so garments. So-and-so utensils. Bone China. Designer garments. Who's love? So let's say the scenario here is the guy's dying, and he says, give my daughter $1,000 worth of designer garments. Now, why talk about $1,000? $10,000 of designer garments. $10,000 of utensils. And then the price of garments went down. The price of household utensils went down. So what's the story? What does she get? Does she get the value of 1000 at the time he said it? Which today can be purchased for 800 and the heirs make a profit, or do we take the thousand at the time he died? So she gets more. The answer is, and the orphans, the heirs make the profit. And she gets the thousand dollars as it was when he said it. So also he said, money for the wine, for my daughter. So he wants to pay for the wine, and suddenly wine, the price of wine shoots through the ceiling. So now, you can get the wine, give 400 zuz, money for wine to my daughter, and the price of wine goes up, the heirs profit. And instead of having to buy wine, which costs $600 today, you just give her the $400. Maisa, there was a story, the Echod, about a fellow, who was being taken out in chains to be executed by the government. That could ruin your whole day. And he said, as, as they're taking him out, he says, give so and so 400 zoos of the wine that I have in this, in this place. Let him take 400 zoos of the money value. Of that wine, no matter whether the price went up or down. He had no intention of giving him the weight of 400 zoos from that wine. He intended money. The fact that he gave an address of where the wine is, only to make it sound real. There's another story about a fellow who said, This date palm, the beat should go to my daughter. And then he died. All he had was two half date palms. How do you have a half date palm? He was partners with somebody else. So he owned half of each date palm. Our sages said, Tito, let the daughter take. Hashnei chasayim the two halves. Because two halves equal whole. That's probably what he intended. The Hanshi called a that's what he called the date palm. Because two half date palms equal one whole date palm. There's another story. Shomar fellow, the dying fellow said, through the plenty by give so and so a house that can contain a huge amount of produce, a hundred kurim. Give him that house that can contain a hundred kurim. He's describing a size. But in time they checked and they found the house that this guy owns, Hamitzava, who made that statement, Machik Meva Essen holds 120 kurim. So it's the wrong size. We all know Chacham and Marseille just say, don't get picky. Zachal the said that's what he meant, but he has no other house that even comes close to that 
statement. Shantori Mar, because the facts show, that he meant this one. How could he say a hundred kur? A house that can contain a hundred kur and give 120. We have a rule that says when a person gives a gift, he gives a generous gift. People are generous in their gifts. Chavgimel 23, give my sons one shekel every week. I guess maybe he was afraid that his sons will take the whole inheritance and just blow it. So he decided to put them on an allowance. Give them a shekel a week. They should be able to buy chont and kugel. Sushi. Baisha Omar already said, I'll keep them a shekel, only give them a shekel a week. And it comes out that in fact a shekel a week doesn't do anything for them. What they really need to get through that week is a sella, double the amount. Nasal Lamb called Sarkin, you give them what they need. Stamazella Harvest because this guy had no intention to starve his children. He just wanted to keep them on their toes. Because he wanted them to make money and not to live on a lavish budget. You know, when you leave children too much, you uh, handicap them. So that was his intention. But if they're starving, surely he would be very happy to give them a little more or double whatever they need. Closing paragraph of chapter 11. Shkhimeda, a dying man. Shetziva Ba'omar gave the word and said, Al Tisbedu. The guy says, Listen, do not eulogize me. We, here in this room, studied, still study, tractate Sanhedrin. We've been on Sanhedrin for quite a few years. And we learned these laws. Is a eulogy for the person who dies, or is a eulogy for the family? Does the person who dies have a right to say, Don't give me a eulogy? Or is he cheating the family? And so on and so forth. Here's Allah. Man says, Do not eulogize me. And the Rambam, in the notes here, refers to the Sanhedrin Gemara. Ain't saving they say you don't eulogize him. A person has that right. I'll take the in a If a person says, Don't you spend my money to bury me? I don't know, you'll find money. I want my money to go to whatever heirs I designated. Let the VA pay for it. Ain't shaming you don't listen to him. That he should be compassionate. He should be concerned about the money his children are given. And throw himself upon the community. That's not fair. You know, there are community funds for indigent corpses to bury. But he's not indigent. He's living a million dollars each kid. It is forbidden to leave him without burial. What do you do? He gave an order. It's part of his last minute will. Dying wish. Well, too bad. You coerce the heirs, the culprit, to bury him from his estate. The estate has to pay for his burial. End of chapter 11. Rambam Mishnah Torah, Hilchais, the laws of Shia, acquisition, or Matona and gifts, Vedic Shnei chapter 12. As we begin chapter 12, which concludes this halacha, I would like to once again, by way of introduction, point out some important axiomatic rules. Number one, by Torah law, if something goes into an inheritance process, which means if somebody dies, then there are laws that have to be followed. The sons inherit, the oldest son gets double. By rabbinic law, the daughters get 10% of the estate to help them with their lives and their marriage. The wife is supported forever or until she remarries by the estate. It's a whole complex system. But during one's lifetime, anyone could give anything to anyone. No one can tell me what to do with my money. So there's something called matana, a gift. No one regulates gifts. So during a person's lifetime, he can give his whole estate away to anybody he wants to, to Mickey Mouse. Once a person goes into a process of inheritance, he has to follow Torah law. We have been learning for the past many chapters about an intermediate process called Tzavoas Shchivmeira, the will and last will of a dying man. The guy is dying. The doctor says he has hours to live. He gathers together the people in front of him and he says, listen, this is how you should dispose of my estate. And our sages did not require too much law to make this happen. You didn't have to have witnesses appointed. You didn't have to have stuff in writing. The last will and testament of a dying man is as if it was handed over and given over. It's given a lot of credibility. And here, the person can also leave his estate basically to whom he wants to, but there are certain provisions which have to be followed because it only kicks in after death. A lot of complications. We learned them over many chapters. So, when somebody gives a tzavah, when there's a last will of a dying man, it could be he's giving it to his heirs. In that case, sometimes it follows rules and regulations of heirs. It could be he's giving it to a stranger. In that case, it's more like a gift. Now let's learn. Aleph, Shechimeda, a dying man. Shalman said, B'ni, Pleni, Hiroshini, my son, this and this son, he mentions his son, my son Moshe will inherit me. And the guy has many sons. These are the words of a dying man. Then if he clearly says, I want my son, this son, then he's the only one that gets to inherit it because it was clear and unambiguous and this is what he wants and it actually begins to take effect before he dies even though it doesn't finish taking effect until after he dies when other laws take it. But in this case, this is an exception because of the clarity. The other sons do not get to inherit it. And 
Now he points out in the laws based on Baba Basra that this law applies only when there's no firstborn son. But if there's a firstborn son, because it applies after death, the father has no right to cut out the firstborn son from his double portion, which is given to him by the Torah. So it's not so simple. So also, we've learned many times earlier that by Torah law, daughters do not inherit because they marry husbands who inherit from their father and their tribe because Israel was divided by tribes. The Chaynim Omar al he said about his daughter, Ben Habonis, this daughter, I have this daughter, she was so good to me. She should be my heir, not the other daughters. Or a brother, amongst other brothers, or other heirs, within limits, his words are sustained. But this all applies to a dying man's will. But a healthy man who makes comments like that, his words do not have consequence. Why? Because healthy people give gifts. They don't cause people to inherit. So if the guy says, Beneath plainly, Yiroshani should inherit me. Well, if you want to give instructions for your inheritance, write a will. You want to give a gift, that's something else. Now comes some interesting scenarios. Shkib a dying man, Shomaru said, Nechasai, plainly, everything I own, all my possessions, should go to so and so. The Achrab, and after him, plainly, it should go to so and so. What does that mean after him? The guy has, let's say, two friends. One is Moshe, and the other is Aaron. He says, All my possessions should go to Moshe. And whatever is left after Moshe, what do you mean? There's nothing left. All your possessions already went. Should go to Aaron. Well, what does the second guy have? The second guy, when he dies, Whatever is left goes, I'm sorry, the first guy, when he dies, whatever is left goes to the second guy, provided that he didn't consume it. What is the chidush here? What is the contribution here? It does not go to the first guy's estate. The first guy's children don't inherit it because the donor, to begin with, said, this will go to guy number one, and then after his lifetime, presumably, it goes to guy number two. But if the first one was an heir, like a son, he was one of the sons, because a son inherits, and it becomes part of his possessions. And therefore, once a son inherits his father's estate, it never reverts back. It goes to his estate. So there's nothing left for the second guy. Because when anybody uses the word gift to an heir, he might as well have said inheritance. The Yerusha, ain't law, hefzik, inheritance never ends. Even though the original guy says, and when he's done with it, let it go to the next guy, an heir is never done. It becomes part of his estate and goes to his children. But a healthy person, who gave the gift of a healthy man, that's something else. Because of it, he wrote a document. And he said to this guy, all my possessions go to you, Mr. Healthy. He's a healthy guy, my friend. And after you're done with it, but plainly it goes to so and so. The second guy gets what the first guy leaves over when he dies. Whether the first guy was an heir, or he wasn't, because he gave it as a gift, and a gift during a person's healthy lifetime is not an inheritance. Vov six. dying man said, "All my possessions go to you." after you to so and so. And the first was an heir. But he specified clearly, and he said, "What I'm giving to you is I'm not giving you an inheritance." which has no end. Clearly, this is a gift. And I clearly defined it as ending. It ends when you die. When you die, I want it to go to the next guy. Hashem, the second one acquires. Mashem, the first one leaves over. What if the guy conveyed money to a third party? Or he gave another command. And he said, we learned this earlier, in a different scenario. Give my children one shekel every Erev Shabbos. Every Friday, give my children an allowance. They should have money to make Shabbos. We learned earlier that if a person leaves that will, and he says, give my children X amount every Friday, and it turns out the children need more, you give them more. Because the father didn't intend to starve his children. But here it doesn't apply. I'm not giving it to them as an inheritance. I'm giving them an allowance. That's something else. As an allowance, you do exactly what the guy said. Whatever is left should go to so-and-so. You only give them the designated amount, which is a shekel. It's not enough, not enough, unlike what we learned earlier. All my possessions go to so-and-so. When he's done with it, it should go to so-and-so. When the first guy dies, the first recipient dies. The second recipient acquires. When the second recipient dies, well, the property became part of the second recipient's estate. It becomes the property of the heirs of the second recipient. What if the second one died during the lifetime of the first? So he never got to the second because he's dead. Dead people don't inherit. It goes back to the estate and heirs of the first fellow. Because the second one, being not living, never acquired it. Even though we just learned that the second fellow only has that which the first left over, does it mean that the first can dispose of everything? Also, it's forbidden for the first to sell or to give away the body of the object. For example, if he has an orchard, he can't sell the orchard. 
give away the orchard. He can enjoy the produce of the orchard during his lifetime. When he dies, the second acquires it. What if the first fellow did not listen to the rules? And he did sell it. What if the first fellow did not listen to the rules and he did give it away? The second guy, who should get it after the first dies, cannot go to the buyers and force it away from them. Why? Because although the first fellow was told not to do it, he was able to do it. Because the second one only acquires to begin with from the body or the produce, only that which was left. And there was nothing left. But the first one gave it or sold it. Now, is that right? No, it's wrong. In fact, the Rambam made something very interesting. The Rambam says, Anybody who comes to the first fellow and says, let me give you some advice. Why should you hold on to it and then die and let it go to somebody else? Sell it now and have a good time. Go take a cruise. Nikra Rosha, that person who gives the person advice, is called wicked. Because he's circumventing the law. Others say the person who does it is also wicked if he knows what he's doing. Even if they were slaves, and the first fellow liberated all the slaves, a kalim, which is forbidden, a kalim or utensils, he had, let's say, material, expensive material. He took this expensive material and made shrouds out of it. You don't use expensive material for shrouds, because it's a waste. But still, he violated the law, his deeds are sustained. When the first one sold these items, which he shouldn't have. He gifted these items, which he shouldn't have. But if the first one sold it, and the son of the or he gave them, sold or gave to his son, who is his heir, or one of his heirs, here he did nothing, because it's not like he sold it to a buyer. He's trying to pass it on as an inheritance. When the stipulation was to begin with, it does not become part of your estate. It goes to the second fellow. Also, he gave it away as a gift. Of a dying man, I feel like I to strangers. He does nothing. Because we learned earlier repeatedly that the gift of a dying man only kicks in after death. The acquisition only takes place when the second one dies. What if the first guy owed money to somebody? What if the first guy had to pay his wife for Ktuba? He divorced her and he owes her. When it comes to court, his creditor or his ex-wife is demanding this property that was only given to him to be passed on to the second guy when he dies. Can the creditor take this property? Can the ex-wife take this property? Even though the first one is still alive, the courts should not collect from this property because it was not the intent of the donor. Only for the produce. But if the first one dies, when his creditor or his ex-wife came to collect, or his wife came, and Magdalene told him to give them nothing because it is transferred to the second guy. Even if he made them collateral, the Gemara says that the word apoytiki is made up of three words. Apo, tehe, koi. The obligation should be on this object. That's called collateral. He designated them for his wife, that she should know that she can collect her marriage contract from here. She can't collect because these were not given as property to collect against. Why? Because the donor to begin with said, I want this given to the second guy. Here's an interesting case. A dying man turns to a single woman, an eligible bachelorette, and says, I'm giving all my possessions to you. And after you, when you die, I'm giving it to so-and-so. Okay, so he gave this woman, this young woman, single woman, everything. But then after she dies, it goes to the second guy. What does she do? The the minister, she goes and gets married. Whoops. She marries, now her husband has this property. How is the husband treated? And what happens when, he dies? when she dies? Baal, the husband is treated like a buyer. Because just like a buyer buys it, when perhaps he shouldn't because it's supposed to go to the next guy, here the husband is like a buyer because he acquires it through marriage. Then Hashem, he makes the other Baal, so the second guy has no right to take it away from the husband, like he has no right to take it away from the buyer. The Omar Lakshinasua, but if he said to her when she was already married, I'm giving all my possessions to you. She was a married woman. And he says, I'm giving you my possessions. But when you die, but plainly I'm giving it to so-and-so. Or Mesa, and she died. We're not concerned about the husband because the husband was on the scene and the donor did not have him in mind. The second one can actually take it out of the possession of the husband. We touched upon this law many times. Being that she only acquired this when she was already married, it was clear that the donor did not intend the husband to get a hold of it. After you, meaning after you die, so-and-so should acquire it. Not your husband. I'm not giving this to your husband. We learned that this is possible. But because therefore, if she went and sold these possessions while she was married, and then she died while she was married. She sold and she died. What happens to these possessions? Well, the same thing as before. The buyer gets to keep them. She gets the out of the care because the husband cannot take them from the buyer. Theoretically, he should be able to. Because she sold them when she was married. And a woman is not supposed to sell stuff when she's married, we learned earlier. Because the husband has the produce. If the husband would have taken it from the buyer, the second guy could come and take it from the husband. 
If the second guy would take it from the husband, the buyer could take it from the second guy. Because she sold it to him. He only has what the first one left over. All this whole circle of events, only the buyer laid out money. Therefore, we say, let's not go there. Let it, the buyer have it to begin with. In fact, he tells a beautiful story. Maisa, there's a story with a man, Shomar, who said, All my possessions should be transferred to his mother. He says, I want everything going to my mother. He was what we call a mama's boy. And after her, to my heirs, first to my mother, then to my heirs. And he had a married daughter. And the daughter died during the lifetime of her husband, during the lifetime of her father's mother. And then the old lady died. So what happens to the estate? The husband does not get to inherit this. Because they were theoretically fit to go to his wife. When did the wife acquire them? Only after she died. Well, that's a problem. But if the daughter left a son, a boss or the daughter left a daughter, they would inherit it. Because when a person dies, his possessions go to his offspring. Because when he says heirs, it appears to indicate and suggest or heirs, heirs. And he said, when the old lady dies, meaning his mother, then in retroactively they go to my daughter, that would be something else. Because retroactive would transfer to the daughter and her husband. Then the husband would inherit them even after the death of his wife. If somebody writes all of his possessions over to his son, and after his death, so the body of the property becomes the son's from the time of this record. In other words, he says, I'm writing everything over to my son, and it should kick in after death, but I'm dating it today. So what happens? Does it go now? Does it go after death? So he says, the body of the object goes to the son from the date of the object. But the father holds on to the produce until he dies. It's like a person can have lifetime usage of the object, but the object has been transferred. Therefore, the father can't sell it because they belong to the son. The son can't sell it because they're the father's. If the father dies, he left produce attached to the ground. Well, this is a good question. Because the produce was the father's, and the earth, the ground, the soil is the son's. It's transferred to the son. Because people are always favorable to disposing to their son. So it goes to the son, even though it's debatable. I push him, but if they were severed, the produce, and she gave the butter of time for them to be harvested. It goes to the heirs. The father transgressed the deal and sold. The father transgressed the deal and sold. When the father dies, the son can force them away from the buyers. If there was attached produce, you evaluate it for the buyer, and then the son has to pay the buyer. You push him if they were severed, picked, and she gave the butter, or it was harvest time. It's the buyers. The son transgressed and sold. The buyer has nothing until the father dies. If the son sold him the lifetime of the father, then the father. Then the son dies and the father dies. When the father dies, the buyer acquires. Why? He goes back to the same principle. The father has the produce, the son has the body of the object. The father only has the produce, which is why all the above laws kick in. The king and the king of acquiring produce is not like acquiring the body of the object. And of course, the laws that we just went through are many and they are complex, and you have to slowly and carefully work every one of these out, but it all comes back to the same issue. And that is the father only has the produce, the son has the body. Yudalid, Matna's body, the gift of a healthy man. Shakasabah, where the healthy man uses the language, the verbiage, from today and after death. What does it mean? It's starting today, while I'm alive and well, it doesn't kick in until after death. This would be exactly like the gift of a dying man, which starts today, but doesn't kick in until after death. We learned earlier, the gift of a dying man does not kick in until after death. Because these words suggest, even though he begins to acquire the body of the object already today, and he doesn't actually acquire it, and he doesn't begin to enjoy it, until after death. That's 15. What if there's a document of gift? Where it's written, plainly that so-and-so should acquire so the plainness, this in this field. There's a document of gift that says Mr. So-and-so should acquire this in this field after the death of the donor. Whether it says in the document that a Kenyan, which is very important, an act of acquisition was performed, does not suggest that it was performed. But being that it does say a time, a date, and at that day he was alive, the time suggests that the acquisition began during lifetime. But it doesn't conclude, he doesn't actually take possession of the until after death. Because if he had in mind to only give it after death, there would be no need for a date. 
All you have to say is after my death, it is given. Even though these words are not specifically inserted into the agreement from today and after death, after death, the fact that it became customary to write in all gifts and in all sales, may akshav kicking in now, which is a good language to insert. Even though there's a date, this is just to make it even better. Even though it's not really necessary, because why write from the present time? A healthy person gives a gift, and he writes in the document from a position of life and death. This is a gift during life. Because he writes during life. In that case, why does he write in death? Why does he write in death? He says, if somebody says, for now and forever. It's just an amplification and embellishment of the document. It kicks in during life. And finally, in this concluding paragraph, the Rambam teaches something very interesting. Usually at the end of a section, the Rambam gives us a nice general teaching. And that is, our sages say that people should not pursue gifts. Gifts are not good things. Better to earn what you get. Hatzadikin, Hagimurim, real righteous people, perfectly righteous people, Yanche Maisa, and men of spiritual deeds, should not, if they can help it, receive, accept gifts from people. We should not be people who chase people for gifts. They should have betokened full trust in God Almighty. Not in people. Because when we trust in people, we're usually disappointed. When we trust in Hashem, we never are disappointed. But in and King Solomon and his wisdom says, He who despises gifts will live, live a peaceful life. And the Rambam ends with, We say goodbye to the laws of acquisition and gift with the help of heaven. End of chapter 12.